How many of you have ever been to a conference, either for work or continuing education or maybe marriage enrichment, one of those type of things, like a conference to learn something, right? Okay. Chances are you either paid to go to that conference or your employer paid for you to go to that conference, and whether or not you were super excited to go, you probably went at least expecting that the speaker at the conference would have something valuable to say for maybe enriching your life, either professional or personal. But what if you paid to go to a conference? Say it's a, a conference about finances, like saving for retirement, and the speaker is this guru, and the first half of the conference is all about how wonderful their savings technique was. And so now, the first half of the thing, they've got you jazzed up. Okay, I can tell that that person is an expert in saving for retirement. Second half is supposed to be the how-to. Here it comes, and then they start speaking in some strange Chinese dialect that nobody understands. Be a little bit frustrating, like it would not do you any good. Or say you go to a marriage conference hoping maybe to refresh your marriage or, or to learn some, uh, uh, some skills in, in, in conflict management, and it's a husband and wife team, and they're up there, and, and they're kind of sparring back and forth, and it's kind of fun at first, and then you realize, like, no, they're actually they're like totally fighting, and, and, and now and then she throws a book at him, and, and it's like, what is going on? Like, we came here for our marriage, and they're seriously fighting up on stage, working out their issues. That, that's not what a marriage conference is supposed to be, right? I, I admit it would be kind of fun and a sick way to watch, but, uh, but that's not what, what it's supposed to be about. Gathering for worship as the church of Jesus is not the same thing, obviously, as attending a conference. At a conference, you are the attendee, you're part of the audience. In worship, we gather as participants. Um, you were just a choir just a minute ago. Um, you, when you come here to worship, you, you greet one another. We, that's a role that we have. Some of you are teachers and readers and singers and prayers and partners of this ministry. It's not just a passive thing. At a conference, it's primarily about going to get something. When we gather for worship, it's primarily about giving something. You attend a conference so that you might hear words or ideas that build up your life outside of the conference. When we gather for worship, we hear words of truth and insights and things that are supposed to build up our community of faith. In the first century AD, in the church in Corinth in Greece... The church was melting down, malfunctioning. They were fighting among themselves. You could go to worship, and the scene that Paul lays out, it seems like they are literally fighting and berating each other in the worship setting. Some of them think that they're so spiritual, and they begin to speak in tongues without interpretation such that people can't even understand each other as they've gathered for worship. Instead of building each other up, they're tearing each other down. And tonight we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, in which Paul is going to try and help bring them back on course. Would you stand with me as we read 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 25? Pursue love, yet desire zealously spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, I wish that all of you spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. 
And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. But now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flutes or harps and producing a sound, if they don't produce a distinction in tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you. Unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and one who speaks to me will be a barbarian. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret that tongue. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What then is the outcome? I'll pray with the spirit. I'll pray with the mind also. I'll sing with the spirit. I'll sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless only in the Spirit, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say, Amen, at your giving of thanks, since he doesn't even know what you're saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person next to you is not even edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also, rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe." Therefore, if the church, the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say, say, you guys are crazy, you're mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted person enters, he's convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Lord, would you help us? That is a lot of words, a lot of concepts. Um, And at points, it seems on the surface to contradict itself. Lord, would you give us wisdom as we open your word tonight? We thank you for your servant, Paul, who pastored the church of Corinth, even through its roughest spells. Would you pastor us tonight, Lord Jesus? Amen. You may be seated. For a few chapters now, before we even get to chapter 14, Paul has been addressing spiritual gifts and their place in the church. He didn't necessarily choose this topic, but he's responding to a bunch of issues that are taking place in the church of Corinth. The Cliff Notes version is this. The Corinthians thought that by speaking in tongues, they had the most important spiritual gift in the world. And they thought that speaking in tongues was proof that you were spiritual, that God's favor was on you. 
they also seem to look down upon those in their congregation who didn't speak in tongues. So we have a church where some spoke in tongues and some didn't. The ones who spoke in tongues thought, we are more powerful, we're more special, we're more gifted than the people who don't speak in tongues. Paul corrected this mistake in three different ways. First, he reminds them that God is the one who chooses which spiritual gifts he gives. That means that tongue speakers don't get the spiritual gift of tongues because they're super special. It's just that God gave them that gift. And also, it means that people that don't have the gift of tongues but have other spiritual gifts are just as gifted. God chose to give them different gifts. Second, in chapter 13, he addresses their hearts. He says, it really doesn't matter how gifted you are. Like, if you have all these spiritual powers and gifts to, you have faith to actually move a mountain, like get up and move and jump into the sea. If you have that kind of faith and you don't have love, you have nothing. Even if you have the spiritual gift of service and knowledge and wisdom and you do all these great things for humanity and you don't have love, you are nothing. Plus, in the end, when Jesus comes in the fullness of his kingdom, there's not going to be prophecy. There's not even going to be the gift of faith. You won't need those things. Because when we see Jesus face to face, you don't need faith anymore to believe in him. He's right there. And when you see Jesus face to face and hear his words out of his own mouth, you don't need the gift of prophecy, which reveals mysteries, because there's, the mystery's gone. He's, there he is. The only thing that will be left in the new kingdom that you and I will need to have and have an abundance is love. That's the thing that lasts. So Paul says in chapter 13, something to this effect, you'd better learn how to love and stop worrying about your gifts because love is what lasts. But now in chapter 14, we get to the third kind of corrective. Yes, love is all that will last when the kingdom finally comes, but in the meantime, which is where we live, we need spiritual gifts to help us be salt and light, to reflect God's kingdom in this world. Particularly, when you gather for worship, you should seek the gift of the ministry of the word, prophecy. Apparently, when people were gathering for worship in the church, those who were proud of having the gift of tongues were taking time out of the public worship service to just have at it from the stage. It'd be like if I was supposed to be giving you a sermon right now, and I start, start speaking in in Greek, very few of you, maybe Deb could pick up some words, or Jennifer Thomas or somebody, but I mean, very few of you would be able to follow, right? It wouldn't be effective. And that's what was happening in the Corinthian church. The problem for Paul, you see, is not the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues is great, he says. It's a wonderful gift for personal worship. The person who speaks in tongues feels closer to God, their heart is strangely warmed in a special way. They have an experience with God. But unless someone also has the gift of interpretation, not even the speaker of tongues necessarily knows what they're saying. Those around them definitely don't know what they're saying. So tongues has a place in personal worship and piety. But when we gather for worship as the church like we're doing right now, Paul says he'd rather speak five words that actually make sense and are instructive than 10,000 words in a tongue. So what's more useful of the gifts? Paul says prophecy, the gift of the word. Now some definition is in order. What does he mean by prophecy? Let's start with what he doesn't mean. 
Prophecy is not primarily, I underlined that word even in my notes, it's not primarily speaking about the future. Okay? Read any of the prophets from Isaiah to Malachi and all the prophets in between, and you cannot help but come to the conclusion that the prophets primarily spoke <clears throat> the word of God for the building up, teaching, comfort, correction of the people of God. Prophets interpret the times through the lens of the word of God. That's what they do. They're mostly social critics. Read Amos. He's talking about the poor. He's talking about economy. He's talking about corruption. That's what prophets do. They take the situation of the world, they read it through the lens of the word of God, and then they speak a word to the people in that time and place. Oh, that we would all have the gift of prophecy how we need wise words and thoughts, biblical words and thoughts in this day and age and any day and age. Yes, sometimes in Scripture, a prophecy has a future orientation, but first and foremost, it has a present-day orientation. We've all heard Isaiah's words, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and he will be called... Emmanuel, yes, and as Christians, we have found this, rightly so, to apply to Jesus, born of a virgin, called Emmanuel, but originally, before Jesus was born, nobody thought of it that way. In fact, this was originally a prophecy about judgment of Judah. King Ahaz was disobedient, he was the king of Judah, he was disobedient to God, and in that setting of Isaiah, the coming of God meant judgment, this prophecy ended up being about Assyria crushing Judah in a horrible way. It actually happened. Ahaz had a chance to repent and turn to God. He didn't. God said, this is going to happen. The virgin's going to be with child. You know, that child was representing Assyria. Assyria came and brutally crushed Judah. That actually happened. Nobody thought there was going to be a different fulfillment of that prophecy. It was prophesied, and then it was done. See, prophecy is primarily about the now, not primarily about the future. I'm going to come back to that one. Second, prophecy is primarily, is not primarily a spontaneous event. Sometimes we think of prophets like the guy in the Lego movie, his voice is Morgan Freeman, and he's blind, and he's old, and he's got the beard, and he's spouting these platitudes of future prophecies. Sorry if you missed the Lego movie thing, that's all right. Just somebody like an oracle, right, who just spouts off these uh, future prophecies. Sometimes that's how we, Hollywood has made prophets to be like that. And sometimes we think of it that way. Sometimes we think of it as the person with the gift of prophecy who says, uh, Tommy, I've just got a word of the Lord for you. Um, I can just tell you struggle with pride. I mean, what are you supposed to say to that? No, I don't. Um, well, then you're prideful. Or, and we all struggle with pride. So, I mean, it's a little bit fortune tellerish, right? But it happens, but it's not primarily, the gift of prophecy is not primarily a spontaneous event. Yes, yes, the Lord can sometimes and oftentimes does speak spontaneously. I've had words spoken over me in prayer by people who said, I, I, I think this is from the Lord. And sure enough, it's been something that, that ministers to me, convicts me, challenges me, comforts me, whatever it is. It happens. And I've had, in, prayer, in times of prayer, uh, what I thought to be a word of the Lord for someone, and, and generally you can tell, you, you can be safe receiving a word if somebody says it very humbly, like, this could just be me, I'm feeling strongly, I, I just want to share this with you, just take it, you know, where you need to be careful is where the person is like telling you, 
you know, just like coming at you strong from an authoritarian point of view. Yes, the Lord can sometimes speak spontaneously, but we need to do it with humility. Most often, though, the gift of prophecy works as we interpret our world and our lives through the power of the Spirit, through the Word of God. So I mentioned before how Jesus, uh, how before Jesus, no one interpreted Isaiah 7 as referring to the coming of the Messiah. Nobody thought that. How did we then come to make that connection where we read that Isaiah 7 passage every year at Advent in reference to Jesus, that there's going to be, the virgin will be with child and his name will be Emmanuel? How did we come to get there? Well, let me tell you how we came to get there. Jesus was actually born. And he actually died and he actually rose. And when he rose from the grave, his disciples, through the power of the Spirit, began to read the scriptures again, collect stories. Oh my goodness, an angel came to Joseph and said that this boy would be called Emmanuel. Look, could it be? What? Isaiah, that was fulfilled with the Assyrians, but no, there's something bigger going on here in the text. And so through prayer and the Spirit and study of Scripture, they began to see, and on the cross, Psalm 22, no one thought that that was going to be about anyone taking on the sins of the world, but sure enough, Isaiah 53, Jewish people don't think that that's about any future Messiah, but Christians have come to interpret these things as pointing to Jesus. How? Because of the power of the Spirit, reading the text through the lens of Jesus, that's the primary role of prophecy. So prophecy is not primarily about the future, although it can be. Oh, yes, it can be. And it's not primarily about spontaneous words of knowledge or anything, but it can be. Positively, then, how does prophecy fit into the life of the church gathered for worship? Well, Paul tells us in verse 3, prophecy serves to edify exhort and comfort. Let's take these one by one real quick. Edification. Do you recognize anything about that word? Edifice comes out of edification. Edifice is like a big giant building. Edification means to build up. In fact, in the Greek word, it's oikodomen, which oikos, if you know a little bit of Greek, even the church downtown oikos means house. So this word, edification, has to do with building the word means to build up or construct. And in the church gathered for worship like we are, prophecy is supposed to build up. Prophecy is the ministry of teaching us out of the word of God. It can correct our thinking and build us up on the foundation of Jesus, which is the corner. He's the cornerstone. Prophecy, edification should point us to Jesus. Exhortation means to encourage or to convict, to challenge, to call to repentance. Prophecy in the church gathered for worship is the word of God applied to a local congregation to encourage us and to correct us. And usually the way this happens is uh, someone preaches a sermon. Jeff preached last week. Some of you may have heard that word, and I, you told me you were comforted. And some of you heard that same sermon and said, I was challenged. You see, the same word, depending on where you're at, the Spirit takes that word and it has an effect in us and on us. Exhortation. It points us to Jesus. And the third thing is comfort. Prophecy comforts us, not by cuddling us, but by reminding us that in our suffering, God is with us. He's with us with fortitude 
to console us in affliction, to speak words of God's truth, his love, his presence, his promise, his deliverance, his salvation. That's comfort. Comfort is not lying to you and saying, everything's okay when nothing is okay. Comfort says Jesus is with you and there's a future hope that is incorruptible and indestructible and it will work out. So prophecy, in light of the events in Orlando, can serve to speak words of justice. Thou shalt not murder. And do not take vengeance into your own hands. Prophecy, the word of God applied to a situation, can condemn the shooting and can condemn the revenge. You don't all need AR-15s to go shoot people now and defend yourselves. The scriptures condemn the shooting. And through prophecy, we can apply the scriptures to those in mourning. The Lord is with the brokenhearted. The Lord came to save that which was lost. For everyone who is mourning and broken and torn up, the whole community, the Lord is there. A word of prophecy can comfort. And this type of, uh, through, through prophecy, we can interpret this catastrophe through exhortation. Even now, if you would listen to me, I will wash the stain of sin away. I will make you whiter than snow. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There is a word of hope there. And this type of ministry builds the church, so we need regular exposure to the interpreted word in our present time so that we're built up and convicted of sin and infused with hope and challenged to love and good deeds most of all, we need these words to be filled with the gospel of Jesus. Now, tongues, something that Paul is referencing here, when they are not interpreted, only serve the speaker of tongues. In a private setting, that is wonderful. But in the church gathered for worship, which is supposed to edify and exhort and comfort, it's at best a distraction. And for the Corinthians, it was a way of showing off because those with the tongues thought that they were more spiritual, so they wanted to come up and show everybody. But the church gathered for worship isn't a talent show where we show off our greatest gifts, right? And Paul uses several examples to make his point. Most of them are pretty self-explanatory. Like, I think we all get when musical instruments are played, if they don't make a tone that is on key, it can be really distracting. And the bugle is an instrument of war, and if you don't perceive the correct sound of the bugle, you're either going to advance or you're going to retreat. And if half of you get it wrong in advance and the other half retreat, well, you're kind of in trouble, right? So it, things need to be clear. That's what Paul's saying. The word needs to be clear. But there is a passage in here that, oh man, it gives us trouble. Um, and it is in verses 16 through 25, if you'd like to look at that. You see, on the one hand, Paul seems to say that tongues are a sign for unbelievers, listen to the words, in the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, Paul continues, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but for unbelievers. But prophecy is a sign, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Okay, so it's interesting, Paul quotes this verse, and then he says, tongues are a sign for unbelievers, not for believers. But in the same stream of thought, he, he says, 
just the opposite. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted or unbelievers enter, won't they say that you're crazy? That you're mad? Now, some Christians have taken the line of thinking that tongues are a sign to unbelievers because unbelievers will come into a church and they'll see people speaking in tongues and they'll think, wow, the Spirit of God is here. It is a sign that God is in this place. I'm telling you, my interpretation is that that cannot be for two main reasons. And here they are. First, in Corinth, pagan worship included ecstatic singing and unintelligible speech. It was a sign that people were filled up by pagan gods. In Paul's setting, speaking in tongues in front of a pagan who wandered in off the street to come witness your worship, if you were speaking in tongues, they would think, oh, this is just like Osiris' cult down here. And it's not that much different than anything else we've experienced. But the second reason is far more convincing for me. It's the scripture that Paul quotes in verse 21 of this passage, if you want to look at it. It's found in Isaiah 28, 11, and it refers to judgment. The Israelites in, uh, in the book of Isaiah were acting like unbelievers. God had revealed himself to them, and they were worshiping other gods and acting like unbelievers. And God was saying that judgment would come upon them from people speaking in strange tongues. You know who those people were? The Assyrians coming and invading them and speaking in strange tongues. And they chopped their heads off and they put people on stakes stuck in the ground while they were still alive. And they pulled people out into captivity. In this context, Paul says that tongues are a sign to the unbeliever because it's a sign of judgment. And here's what I think he's getting at. This is where it takes a little interpretation. Why would Paul quote this Isaiah 28, 11 passage that's all about judgment from people speaking in tongues? And here's what I think it is. Paul's making the point that when we gather for worship, the word should be declared clearly because people need to be exhorted and comforted and edified, right? If someone comes in off the street who doesn't know Jesus and you're all showing off speaking in tongues, they're going to leave in judgment just like they came because they will not have been able to hear the gospel. And that's why Paul flips it right after he makes that statement and says that tongues are for believers and prophecy is for unbelievers because they need to hear the clear word of God. Now that we have a little bit of a greater understanding of what this passage meant to the church in Corinth, let's consider some of the implications it may have for us today. Here's one. If you're from a background that exalted tongues as the mark of the Spirit, this passage, along with the end of chapter 12, offers us a corrective. We learn clearly at the end of chapter 12 that not everyone has the gift of tongues, that God decides who gets what gifts, so whatever spiritual gift or gifts you have are evidence of the Spirit in you. And as Paul has said over and over again, not only in Corinthians but in other letters that he wrote, the gift of faith that enables you to believe in Jesus in the first place is a spiritual gift. 
So if you are a follower of Jesus, you've been baptized, and you don't speak in tongues, it doesn't mean you don't have the Spirit of God in you. If you have any of the spiritual gifts, including faith in Jesus, you have the Spirit in you. And that's good news. So that offers a corrective to that line of thinking that if you don't speak in tongues, you are not somehow filled with the Spirit. On the other hand, if you come from a background that looks down on the gift of tongues or doubts its existence altogether, then this passage is also a corrective. Paul spoke in tongues, and he even says, I wish everyone would speak in tongues, and he even encourages us to pray for this gift and for the gift of interpretation. So we don't get away, you know, you could read this in one way. It totally supports my theory that not everyone speaks in tongues. Yay, me. Well, if you're looking down on those who speak in tongues just because you don't understand, we can't do that either because this passage says, uh, you know, Paul says, I, I wish that you did speak in tongues and pray for it, by the way. It's a great gift. It's just not more important than prophecy when you gather for worship. Here's another one. If you come from a church that taught we just need to get back to the way the, the New Testament church did church. This passage offers us a corrective. And that's the background I come from, by the way, a restoration movement church. No creeds, just the Bible. Well, which New Testament church are you referring to? Because undoubtedly the church in Corinth was structured differently than the church in Jerusalem that was primarily Jewish, and the church in Antioch was different than the church in Rome and different than the church in Philippi and Thessalonica. And what part of the New Testament church was it you were hoping to imitate? Was it the sin issues of Corinth, or maybe the legalism of Galatia, or the persecuted church of Jerusalem, or the ethnically divided church of Rome? Which New Testament church are we talking about? See, usually when people say, let's get back to that New Testament church, what we're talking about is worship style. And we tend to romanticize how the early church actually worshiped. So free church and house church movements like to imagine people meeting in circles in their homes and everyone sharing the teaching load equally. And typically people like this also lived in hippie communes for a while after college. And, and the church of, the, old, of the, the ancient church looks suspiciously like a hippie commune. Uh, but then there are others who recall that the first worship gatherings outside of homes were in Roman-style public houses. The word basilica that we often use to describe a church actually means the Roman courthouse. That's where people used to gather for worship. And if you look at the liturgy of people like St. John Chrysostom, we see some very structured, liturgical, it's the same way every single Sunday kind of stuff. And so people who love structure and liturgy look to those and say, that's how the early church actually was. Now, neither one of these examples, and there are many, many more, is inherently right or wrong. They are both expressions of culture in conversation with the gospel. My point is that whatever our church structure, we have to recognize that the way we do what we do is in some way shaped by culture. Our church and our worship should always be grounded in scripture and tradition, but the way we talk and dress and communicate and order things on a Sunday is influenced by our culture. Go to a worship gathering in a Roman cathedral and you will have a very different experience than a Pentecostal church in South America and a different experience than a Quaker meeting house in Pennsylvania. 
Different expressions of worship will look different and attract different personalities and gifts. That's what makes the universal church so important and so beautiful. Every local church, including this one, has exactly what we need in terms of giftedness because Jesus supplies every local church with what they need. But I also believe that every local church needs the other local churches to be complete. We don't all have it together by ourselves. And the rub, I think, is that we have to, not that we have to look like this church or that church. The tension is that we are relevant. The tension is that we're relevant. Now, before, I know some of you just puked a little bit in the back of your throat when I said that, because I did too when I wrote it. What do I mean by relevancy? Let me please define that for you before you pass out. The gospel of Jesus that doesn't change in conversation with culture. That's what I mean by relevancy. The gospel of Jesus was doesn't change. The gospel doesn't change. The scriptures don't change. But they're in conversation. They're translated into culture. See, Jesus doesn't change. But the clothing might change, right? The, the vehicle might change. A hip-hop church in inner-city Minneapolis-St. Paul area is called Sanctuary Covenant Church. Amazing gospel ministry. You will be fed the word of God there, but you will see <laughs> hip-hop worship and young people dancing. Not sexually, but just, just dancing, hip-hop style. It's not not extremely Bellingham, right? That doesn't fit. The word is going out and it's reaching people that I could never reach in that setting. And this church looks quite different than that church. And, and, and so we, we try and embody the gospel into our context. That's, by the way, I think what makes Christianity one of the things that makes it unique um, in that some religions in order to be a convert to that religion, you have to dress the way everyone dresses. You have to read even the, the, the scriptures in the, in the original languages that nothing can be translated. And early on, the early church was so successful because it was able to translate across cultures and languages. That's powerful. What would Paul say? I think Paul would say, based on this scripture, don't distract from the ministry of the word. Don't distract from the ministry of the word. Whether you structure your service like an Eastern Orthodox church or like a hip-hop church downtown, don't distract from the word. So are you going to have symbols and liturgy? Fine. Explain why you do what you do. So we have some colors that represent the church calendar. We know green is for ordinary time. We know that that candle is the Christ candle. How do we know that? Because we talk about it about every third week. We're asking the kids to engage. And I know that the kids know more than half of you sometimes, but I ask the kids to take the pressure off you. And so when visitors come, they learn and go like, oh, I didn't know that, but now I know because glad the kids are here. But we try and teach. Every symbol has to have a meaning in my, in, in my book. It, when we talk about doing weddings, you know, I have this like... I, I give a couple like a template. I say, now, no wedding ever looks like this. This is every conceivable element you could ever have. And what I say is, you can pick and choose, but I recommend that you only pick elements or symbols. If you're going to do the candle lighting or you're going to do the communion or whatever, only do things that actually matter to you. Symbols have to matter. So if you're going to do a high church liturgy thing, fine. Explain why you do it. Are you going to do the free church thing? 
that loves the smoke machines and the professional band that you're going to play a big salary for, that's fine. But don't make it about the performance, right? Don't make it about who has the best, looks best in their skinny jeans. Make it about the ministry of the word. Sing songs with substance, and please do it in a key that we can all sing with you, right? So you, you do the big band thing? Fine, just do it in a way that doesn't obscure the word. Are you going to hire a gifted preacher? Fine. Just make sure that they're about the ministry of the word, that their words are more about Jesus, the word, than self-promotion or you know, testing out their newest jokes for stand-up comedy. Make sure you don't distract from the word. So you see, Paul's point is that when the church is gathered for worship, we should hear the words that lead to the word. Marcia, that's why you read from John 1. You were like, why am I reading this one? In the beginning was the word, right? And the word, it's talking about Jesus. At the, at the church, gathered for worship, we should hear words, sing words, read words that point us to the word. That's what I think Paul would say. When we gather for worship, we don't need to be proud of how cool our band is, although you guys were rocking it today, Nicole. We don't need to be showing off how cool our children's ministry is, although it's great. Thanks, Jim. We need to proclaim the word. We need to proclaim the words that lead to life. And we need to say to people on a regular basis through subtly or sometimes just openly, like, hey, do you know the good news about Jesus? Do you know? Jesus, the word, was in the beginning, and he made the world, and he made you, and he made me. And the prophetic word says, you and I are dead in our sins and our transgressions. We don't just make mistakes time for time to time because I'm only human. I'm a rebel against the living God. And I've planted my flag in different areas of my life, and I said, I want this for myself. You do this too. You and I, we are rebels. We're not just like, we don't just happen to make mistakes sometimes. That's what the prophetic word needs to tell us on a regular basis. And deep in your heart, you know that that's true. Like, there's just certain things I don't want to give up. And we've brought the death penalty upon ourselves. And this is also the prophetic truth of the word. In his inconceivable love and grace, the God against whom we have sinned became one of us and died in our place and defeated death. And his name is Jesus. And he rose from the grave. And he invites us to trust him for forgiveness of sin and abundant eternal life. Zoe was baptized today in a response to that prophetic word. How do you respond to it? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the servant, your servant Paul, who gives us this word this evening, who is ever pointing, not just the churches he wrote to, but us as well, ever pointing us to the living word, to Jesus. As we read these words of Paul and try and make sense of them in our own context, Holy Spirit, would you take these words and make them prophetic words? Words that challenge, that reveal who we really are, our lostness, if that be the case, our foundness, if that be the case. 
fill us up with love and appreciation for Jesus and help us to turn more and more of our lives over to him, to concede our little lands, the sections of our heart that we have uh, tried to force him out of. Lord, come be king of my heart and the hearts of my brothers and sisters. Bless you for loving us and rescuing us. Help us to obey. Amen.